Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the factors affecting our attitude and actions to motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including Hertz offers Polestar electric vehicles, BMW's expensive subscriptions for car features that are already in your car, industry approach to climate change and the need for tax reform. In our feature stories, we interviewed Damien Shaw, the Managing Director of Hertz, about their embracing of electric vehicles, and we do so while driving around in a Polestar 2. And we have a feature that compiles a range of comments about how the automotive industry, academia and the Grattan Institute are talking about change. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. Let's get this program going. First, the news. Polestar 2 electric vehicles are now available to rent across Australia at selected Hertz rent-a-car offices, including Adelaide, Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Hobart and Launceston. The local fleet expansion follows on from the recent announcement of Hertz committing to buying 100,000 Teslas and over 65,000 Polestar vehicles for its global fleet over the next five years. The vehicles will be rented here in Australia for the same price as a prestige car such as an Audi. Helping customers get acclimatised to an electric car will be part of the Hertz program. One area that renters will see as a difference is that the Polestar 2 will not only recognise your fob key to unlock the doors, but it will automatically start up the vehicle. Damien Shaw, Hertz General Manager for Australia and New Zealand, is aware of the differences in electric vehicles. That's definitely part of the verbiage. As soon as your car's unlocked and you're in, it's uh, it's actually running. The good thing with all of the EVs is there's safety, safety features, though. You know, so like if you've got your charging cable in, the car won't engage gear. You know, there's a lot of features around it to actually help protect the car and the driver. But yes, there's some education there. And I mean, you know, one, one pedal driving is one that we will have to tackle. But again, the way we set the car up is not to encourage that. It has become an accepted fact that some features of cars have to be updated. The maps in a sat-nav, for example. After a few years, you start getting charged for the updates, which is reasonably understandable. But if your new vehicle comes with certain features, should you then be charged to use them? BMW has received some very negative press about their new approach to ongoing costs. Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys tells us what you have to pay for with a subscription. They've not confirmed exactly what's going to be coming, but so far heated front seats and heated steering wheel uh, have been mooted for upcoming models such as the uh, X1, for example. Prices, although again, I don't think they're firm, heated front seats would be $29 a month and the steering wheel $19 a month. Other things are the drive recorder, the automatic high beam, wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, adaptive M suspension, real-time traffic information, and iconic sounds sport. So these are some features that are actually in the car that they will turn off, not allow you to use, unless you're paying them a rather substantial monthly fee. Well, more particularly, they're in your car and they won't turn them on unless you pay a substantial monthly fee. <laughs> I think that's the way they're looking at it. Alan, you have spoken to a number of car companies. Is this likely to be a trend? I did a ring around and most of them say they're watching with interest. Uh, at this stage, no. 
watching with interest is a bet each way, isn't it? Well, I think what they were doing was, uh, without going on record, was saying that BMW was copying an absolute hiding for what looks like a fairly greedy money grab. Two weeks ago, we ran a story on a wide range of automotive industries from manufacturing, sales and operations who agreed on principles for the transition to electric vehicles. Their approach has come under some strong criticism because the fuel efficiency standards they have adopted are not government mandated at this stage and many of their 25 principles for transition are open to wide interpretation. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries says that they are happy to have mandatory fuel standards, but they have to be founded in reality. There is, of course, the reality of the industry as they see it, but also there is the reality of the need for quick and effective action to address climate change. The mandatory standards that are being proposed focus on the type of cars that are available to be purchased, which in the short term should favour electric vehicles, but should soon progress to eliminating internal combustion engines altogether. But there is a need for a broader range of actions that are based not only on what cars can be bought, but on how they are being used. While there has been much talk about the need for mandatory fuel efficiency standards, this does not take away from the other measures that are an essential part of tackling climate change. Dr Diane Crawl is a researcher at Monash University. She has been investigating the need for an appropriate tax structure. And that's why our research focused on federal taxes, because we need a national system that everyone has to be, you know, in compliance with. Okay, the road user charge uh, levied by the, the state of Victoria. They say, okay, it's balanced out by the $3,000 subsidy if you buy a brand new electric vehicle. That's political kind of rhetoric. One balances out the other. What we really need is to focus on a national system, which is why we looked at fringe benefits tax and income tax. And that has been the news. Hertz Rent-A-Car are bringing electric vehicles onto their fleet. We caught up with Damien Shaw, the General Manager for Australia and New Zealand, in a drive around in one of their new Polestar 2 electric vehicles. So how many electric vehicles are Kurtz getting worldwide and how many will come here? We've got two agreements globally. We've got um, 100,000 Teslas uh, coming and we've got uh, 65,000 Polestar. They're our, they're our primary agreements at the moment and we're, we're really looking to be the leaders in that EV space. In Australia, we don't really want to talk numbers at this stage, but we plan to be by the end of, end of the year the dominant player in the market from a rental perspective. You must have to set your expectations based on the infrastructure that we've got as well. You can't rush something that would struggle to perform well if we don't have the charging infrastructure. I think you're right there, David, but the, the other thing we need to get and get our heads around pretty quickly is scale and scalability. So around the globe, Hertz are looking at different ratios of charger to car. So as an example, in, in the US, they're working on a one, one charging piece of infrastructure to 12 cars. We're working more on a one to five, and we're trying to actually learn you know, what is the right ratio. The beauty of an electric car for a retail or a private customer is you can charge at home. Our problem is I need to charge in mass. So um, 
Sydney Airport's probably the primary one for all rental cars. There's, there's probably about 8,000 cars at Sydney Airport and they all need three-phase power for charging. So uh, if we have to plug them all in at once, we've got a problem. It does get back to the value of fleets where the management of that gives you pretty good data. Perhaps the first question is not what is the range, rather the first question is how will I be using it? And that's that's been a big focus for us. I mean, we've been dabbling in FEV and EV over the last sort of couple of years, to be honest. And once we get a customer that's doing a same-day rental or a one-day rental, we get them into an electric vehicle, they don't want to get out of it. Um, it fits their purpose. You know, you're driving it now. It's a great car to drive. And they overcome their anxiety fears. But, but you're right. It is what am I using the car for is probably the purpose, yeah. The average car does about 270 kilometres a week, which is well within the range of, of this. It is, though an expectation when you're using it to top it up rather than wait till it's on empty. Funny you say that. I borrowed an electric car for three months just to get myself quite familiar with the way it operated and I must admit, a bit like how I drive my fuel car, like a fuel car I drive to quarter full uh, and then fill up. You know, that's just been inbred in my in my psyche. With the EV, when I first got it, I'd get it home and I'd charge it straight away because I was panicked I'd not have enough mm. energy to get me where I needed to go. Very, very quickly, though, I turned to charging it once a week. Okay. And starting to be a bit smarter around how I charge, too. So not charging until 9 or 10 o'clock at night because I knew I had ample time for the next morning and sort of managing the, the, the charging ratios. It'll be interesting to see how people adapt. Why is Hertz pushing this? Is it to do with the good corporate image as well as one that you think that people need to come to grips with? I think it's probably a combination of that. I think we look at what's happening in the manufacturing and uh, area and we see electric vehicles are coming. We're, we're the end of the supply chain. We don't manufacture anything here anymore. So we can see what's happening in Europe. There's a bit of a difference in Asia. I still think they're hedging their bets around hybrid and hydrogen options, which again is a fantastic transition car for, for, for us. But we see EV as the future in mobility and we have to learn how that works in our particular market and how how you as a consumer that if you're going to Melbourne for a business trip, I know this car will meet your needs. But if you're coming to Melbourne and going to Adelaide and it's your holiday, we might not be just there yet unless we can make sure we've got better infrastructure. Um, The most frustrating thing I think for any EV user is you get to a charging network and it's broken or someone's there and they've only just started charging and it sort of interrupts your trip. That's really the we're struggling to get our heads around. I think the answer there is, well, there's not enough infrastructure. And when you start looking, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in your in your planning phasing, but, you know, if you look where we've got big pace, big groups of population, even if you get to 5% of the motor vehicles being EV, you, you have nowhere near enough infrastructure to deal with it. So it's going to it's be a massive challenge for, for government, society, and it's certainly going to be a challenge for a rental car. But equally, fleets have that opportunity of a well-managed understanding of how we're, we're used. I grew up in the time where you just got out, the only decision was which route do you take and where do you park, whereas it's now becoming more integrated into what I have to think about in terms of a day-to-day life. People getting into the car, in any renter car, you want to be able to present a quality product. And in some ways, people are now picking electric vehicles because they're sustainable, but that's not the number one. It's that it's the modern features. 
one of the nice things and one of the inevitable things you need to do is make sure that you've got the modern features, which inevitably is going to include having an electric vehicle. Well, we'll certainly have plenty of electric vehicles for people to drive um, towards the end of the year, I can promise you that. Um, <laughs> I think it goes back to, to, to your point, it's, it's what you're using the car for. Mm. And, and actually, if you are planning for a longer leisure trip, as an example, you have to be better planned with an electric vehicle at the moment. But I'm hoping in the not-too-distant future you don't have to plan to that degree because the infrastructure network will be significantly better. Hope is not a great strategy, though. So I'm not sure how that's going to play out. And and I think the, the more we can get the voice out that it's not the supply chain, although that is difficult at the moment, it's not the supply chain of the car that's going to be our problem. It's going to be the infrastructure to support it. But we're pretty... We're okay at managing fleets. We, you know, we manage thousands and thousands of cars and we're, and we're used to how that works. We've just got to be able to get around in our own minds, you know, instead of a five minute refill at a pump, you know, we're now talking 45 minutes at best with a fast charger, four and a half hours with a 22 kilowatt charger. And then, you know, if we have to plug it into a standard socket, it can be 17 to 25 hours depending on the charge level. So we've, we've got to adapt. I don't think the pattern of people use, like for us, you know, if I just talk with a really broad brush, people pick up in the morning and return them at night. You know, that's sort of the pattern. And so we do have that opportunity overnight to charge and prepare. It's just that how are we going to go? It's going to be all right when we're 5%. It'll probably be okay when it's 10% of our fleet. But when it's 50, then we're going to start having some operational issues just in the dealings of time. And again, I'll go back to the hope strategy. The, the way technology is speeding up, mm. we're hoping that the battery charge, the units that are coming out to actually help us in that area will just continue to improve. The word is adaptable, really, isn't it? We've made the mistake in transport planning of trying to predict the future exactly rather than being able to adapt to it as it comes and make the decisions as we go. Not to be slack and wait for something catastrophic, but to move ahead but be adaptable if things change. That's a great reflection. We often talk about the ability to be agile and and I think um, EVs in some ways are coming faster than we expected. So we've been quite surprised at at, at the speed and the variety of models and brands that are entering the market. We have to be agile as well. So, I mean, we've got a a massive program around where we want to be come December 22 Um, and then we've got a a plan that will hopefully see us quadruple that in reality uh, by the end of 23. But for us, it's like, do I have five cars here because I've got one charging network? That's fine for spread. But what I really want as an operator is I need to have a thousand cars at Sydney Airport and then how do I manage that? And then what's the future look like? And that's where we keep hitting the infrastructure hurdle at the moment. Are the customers asking for it? It's interesting that you know, we have been dabbling. Um, there's quite a lot of what I might put into the tech or EV um, groupie scene, if that's, if that's a polite term. But they're really interested in that technology and that information. They come in, they know more about the car than we do. They're extremely well planned. You know, they know, they know exactly what they want to do. But they're not really our mass market. Our mass market is getting in into our everyday traveller who's not that way inclined. And that's a challenge at the minute. But I can promise you, the people, as soon as we get them in it, they don't want to get out. So it's really the challenges for us is how do we encourage them to get in it and how do we encourage them to understand what they're using the car for versus anxiety range and 
and so forth. That raises the point of how you train the person on the front counter, that they must be particularly astute to understanding how the person will use the car and also then how to best prepare them to, to, to using it. Uh, you, you've been working on that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's two, there's two avenues to the way we're trying to get people into the car. There's someone booking it off our website who, you know, is an EV person. And then there's, as you said, it's managing the customer at the counter. Our staff are a bit lucky in that our manifest will show that you're doing a one-day rent or you're doing a three-day rent or you're doing a five-day rent. And you can also see which channel it's come through. So, like, if it's a business booking versus a leisure booking. So, we can actually focus in and say, well, okay, well, David's coming in today. He's doing a one-day rental in Sydney. It's booked through a business account, so we know he's pretty much going to be staying within the Sydney bounds. When he comes in, we'll say, David, we'd like to get you into our EV. We're looking at ways where we can have QR codes that you can scan with your phone and watch demonstration videos on how to use the car. We've got uh, an awful lot of information now on our website on how to use the car, whether it's a Polster or a Tesla, um, and the variations between the two. And we're trying to actually, in some ways, while we're learning, have what I'd call an EV champion at each of the major sites. Uh-huh. So that if there is an issue or a customer's got a query that we can't really answer through the, the, the demonstration videos, then they're there to support and help. You talked about maybe hopping into an Audi or whatever for just a, a drive day. Do you think you might get people who will hire a car for a day, an electric car, to see their reaction to it? Because driving from a dealership is usually around the block. Yeah. Perhaps we should encourage people to think about getting a car for a day merely just to experience it. I think that used to be the way um, manufacturers sold cars. They'd say, well, we'll put them into the rental fleets and people Mm. get to try before they buy. It's been an old catch cry, you know, um, rent it today, dealer sells it tomorrow. But I think with EV, there'll be a lot of inquisitive people that just go, you know, I'm not sure, is it going to work? I'll go and rent one, not for a day. I think you'll find people will rent them for a week or maybe even a couple of weeks to go, you know what, this EV can be my second car or this EV does fit my fit for purpose needs um, and really get to learn it because I think the comment you said earlier around you hop in a car for a week and you get frustrated with things that probably aren't that big a deal in the scope of it, um, you really do have to make sure the car fits you and I think this will fit 80 to 90% of general use. You're listening to Overdrive. We recently reported on a wide range of automotive organisations reaching agreement on transition to electric vehicles. Their list of 25 principles included some generalised statements, such as opposing the introduction of bans that limit consumer choice. Since that announcement, there has been some strong backlash. That the fuel efficiency standards proposed through the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, FCAI, was a voluntary system and the standards are not high enough. The Fairfax newspapers have just run a story under the heading Revealed Car Industries Secret Emissions Plan Would Slow Electric Vehicle Uptake. The opening paragraph stated, quote, The car industry has launched a wide-ranging secret campaign that would delay Australia's transition to electric vehicles and hamper a key part of the nation's climate change plan, confidential documents show, 
The lobbying and public relations strategy circulated in recent weeks among top motoring executives aims to limit any new fuel efficiency standards to a level that would leave Australia's car industry with some of the weakest carbon emission rules in the world. Unquote. We spoke to a Monash University researcher, Dr Diane Kroll. Well, what the report says is that that the FCAI is keen to retain the voluntary emission standards. And what our research has brought out is that there has to be regulated national standards for emissions for cars, for fuel efficiency standards, compared to the countries that we selected to benchmark Australia against, Norway, Netherlands, uh, Germany, the UK, we are way above the uh, emissions intensities for those comparative countries. On the same day as the Fairfax article, in a Grattan Institute webinar, Tony Webber, the CEO of FCAI, gave the industry's perspective. We wanted government to mandate a CO2 target, but we didn't get it. And we still want a government-mandated target. In 2020, the second best option was a voluntary CO2 target. And as an industry, we had the courage to self-impose a target on our members. When he spoke about not getting a mandatory target, this would have been at the time of the previous federal government. Dr Kroll thinks that the legislative environment has changed. Uh, Yes, I'm I'm feeling um, optimistic and most researchers in my area trying to, uh, you know, the the goal is to, to lower CO2 emissions because it's affecting global warming. That's the end game. And one of the big contributors to our high CO2 emissions is transport. And then we've we've focused on fleet cars because 40% of cars on the road are fleet cars. So we need a national approach. Do you admire the states for at least trying to get into it in an environment in the past that was very reactionary? Uh, yes, look, you know, whether they were, you know, whatever colour politically the, the, the states have been over, say, the past 10 years, they have made uh, big efforts, you know, with their policies to try and lower CO2 emissions and go green. But of course, as you know, we've had the climate wars in the um, federal politics sphere. And now with the, the change of government, what I'm looking at are policies that are really going to pick up and address climate change. One of the problems that has arisen from Australia being seen to be very slow in the past to address climate change is that as all manufacturing is now done overseas, companies may be hesitant to provide significant volumes of electric vehicles to our market where there is little incentive to buy one. At the Grattan webinar, Helen Rowe, who leads the transport program at ClimateWorks Centre, said... What we know is global supply is being sent to those markets that do have those kinds of standards because if you don't meet that standard, you're going to be fined or you don't meet the the regulations. So there's really no incentive to send vehicles to Australia. While we may move to a mandatory fuel standard system, the key issue is what should the levels be? Tony Webber emphasises the complexity of making a major shift in technology from the manufacturer's perspective. FCI started work with its members in 2016 on a CO2 target. Why? Because we see it as an important issue. 
As an industry with long-term investment timeframes, it's important to give yourself as much time as possible to smooth the transition to such a major change. And this is an enormous change. It's once in 100 years change. We wanted government to mandate a CO2 target, but we didn't get it. And we still want a government-mandated target. In 2020, the second best option was a voluntary CO2 target. And as an industry, we had the courage to self-impose a target on our members. Now I ask you, how many other industries in Australia or around the world have been courageous enough to impose a CO2 target on themselves? In 2020, we publicly announced two things, our CO2 targets for 2030, and secondly, the fact that we would regularly review the targets starting in 2022, and that process is just about to kick off. Why review the targets? Because time progresses, we have a better understanding of emerging technologies, worldwide availability of batteries, consumer trends, and likely costs of new technologies. Thus, we can have a more educated view about this possibility. Let's be frank about this issue. It's complex. I fear that many people bring very uneducated and simplistic views to the table in regard to this complex issue and purport to be experts. We're the FCI also do not have perfect vision on developments around the world. The work that car makers, R&D centres are undertaking and what suppliers such as Bosch and Delphi, the really big players in the supply sector, what are they undertaking now in terms of research for the next model cycles that will come out somewhere between five and eight years from today? Are the industry standards high enough and how do they compare to the rest of the world? The Fairfax article said that if we were to adopt the industry standards, it would, quote, mean that passenger cars sold in 2030 would still pump out an average of at least 98 grams of CO2 per kilometre, leaked documents show. By comparison, European standards in place now specify 95 grams of CO2 per kilometre, with a ban on almost all new petrol and diesel vehicles, including hybrids, in 13 years. Britain plans to ban the sale of most new petrol and hybrid cars from 2030. Unquote. What could the fuel efficiency standard look like? Ingrid Burford, an economist with the Grattan Institute, who also spoke at the webinar, defined what they thought was a desirable system. It's also true that EV subsidies are a particularly expensive way to reduce emissions, but moreover, we don't know precisely what we're going to get. So we could spend quite a lot on subsidies, but not actually guarantee that they translate into the kinds of cuts we need. And that's exactly why Grattan recommends an emission ceiling as the ideal policy for reducing carbon emissions from the cars and utes on our roads. If, for example, we have a target in place of 140 grams of carbon per kilometre, and I am Toyota, what that might mean is, for example, if I sell two RAV4 edges, which emit just over 170 grams of carbon per kilometre, I can then balance those sales by selling two RAV4 hybrids, which emit just over 100 grams of carbon per kilometre. So together across those four sales, the average grams of carbon come in just under the 140 target. If the target then ratchets down the following year to 125 grams of carbon, I could sell one RAV4 edge and three RAV4 hybrids and meet the target that way. 
But is it enough to rely on averages and on the type of vehicles that are sold rather than on how they are being used? If a household has, say, two vehicles, a large petrol ute and a small electric vehicle, who is to say that they will be used equally? I support the implementation of a mandatory fuel standard, but feel there is plenty of room to target the use of heavy polluting vehicles. The FCAI did offer some information with a little more breakdown in what is projected to happen. They commissioned some forecasting and in part they concluded We have engaged S&P Global, the world's leading forecasters on the automotive sector, to provide us some insights in the future of low emission vehicles. So let me outline some of their analysis. What will Australia look like with no policy change in 2030? Well, S&P Global forecasts that 18% of our sales will be battery electric, 4% will be plug-in hybrid, 23% will be hybrid, 31% will be mild hybrid, and 24% will remain ice. But the real issue here, as I alluded to before, was utes. They forecast that only 1% of the market for utes will be full battery electric, 4% will be hybrid, 53% will be mild hybrid, and 41% will be internal combustion engine. So we have a lot of work to do. Tony summarised the FCAI's position as follows. So what I say is, give us a target, give us a CO2 target, and the industry will give you the technology. However, the target needs to be framed around reality. The industry will have its version of the strength of the measures that are needed based on their perception of the reality of the industry, but there is also the reality of a need for major action in the immediate future to address climate change. I would conclude then that a national fuel efficiency standard is essential. The targets need to be aggressive. Any standards on the type of cars being sold should distinguish the relative impacts of hybrids, plug-in hybrids and full electric vehicles. We also need to address how cars are being used, not just what cars are being sold. Other programs that target specific areas of high pollution need to be addressed and positive outcomes need to be promoted. As we have reported, there are strong calls for a total redesign of the tax system for the ownership and use of vehicles. And finally, a road user charge has been a policy that has been advocated for many years by planners and needs to be implemented in the short term. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Damien Shaw, Alan Zervis, Dr Diane Crawl, the Grattan Institute and Paul Just for their contributions to this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.